the book of Judges. As we continue in our Bible 2020 series, we come to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And I want to give you a bit of context before we dive into this book together as you read along. Uh, if you remember, uh, last time we were with the children of Israel in the book of Joshua, they, uh, these people had finally entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land that had been promised to them by God. The book of Joshua is really a book of conquest. It's a book of great faithfulness uh, exhibited by the people who walked by faith and not by sight. They crossed over the Jordan River by faith. Uh, they conquered the city of Jericho and 30 cities after that by faith. Uh, the land was then apportioned to all the children of Israel. Uh, the book of Joshua, they finally arrive in the land of promise and see the power of God and walk by faith. Then you come to the book of Judges, which unfortunately is almost like a dark sequel to the book of Joshua. Uh, it's a book of compromise, and it's a book of sin. Uh, it's a book that's named, the book of Judges derives its name from the leaders who God raises up at different periods of time to lead the children of Israel. Now, don't think black robe and behind a bench type judge. The word judge literally means a deliverer. They were more like tribal chiefs over specific areas. They were military leaders or political leaders who God raised up for particular periods of time in particular situations to lead the people of Israel. Uh, they were judges like Barak. They were judges like Samson, uh, Deborah, men and women that we've heard of in the past. There were 12 judges, then led up to two final judges that gave us a total of 14. The final two were Eli and Samuel. So Samuel is that final judge who really serves as prophet and priest that leads into the next period, which will be the period of kings that we'll look at in a few weeks. Book of Judges, as we kind of just give an overview, gives us a very graphic picture of what it looks like to slide into sin and compromise. That really characterizes this book. It's a very graphic book. If you start at the beginning and go all the way to the end, in fact, the last four chapters of the book of Judges are just mind-boggling of the depth of depravity that God's people fall into. It almost takes your breath away. Another thing that stands out in this book as you read it is one of the great tragedies that you see is that God's people are in the land of Canaan, but by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, you can tell no difference from God's people uh, in regard to the people of the land. You can't tell any difference. The children of Israel look just like the Canaanites. They act just like the Canaanites. They worship just like the Canaanites. So God's people who were placed in the land to be a light and to be a picture of what it means to follow the one true God look just like all the other people in the land. But also, one great thing as you read through the book of Judges, you see God's power and faithfulness to deliver his people from their sin, from their compromise, from the consequences of their sin, you see God's power and faithfulness to deliver his people, and that shines against the dark backdrop of Israel's sin and compromise. God uses unskilled, unqualified men and women to deliver his people. Guys like Gideon. You'll read about the story of Gideon, a man who said, I'm the least of the tribes of Israel. Why in the world would you use me to deliver my God's people from the Midianites? And God's answer is, the same throughout. It's not really about you, Gideon. It's not because of your greatness or your power. 
I'm going to display my power, my faithfulness to my people, even when they're in the depths of sin and compromise. So it's a beautiful picture of God's grace that even overshadows their deep depravity and their deep sin and their deep compromise in the book of Judges. Now, the book opens, the first couple chapters set the stage for what you see in the rest of the book. It's a couple realities that stand out in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that I want us to see, and then we're going to dive in to a few verses in chapter 2. There's a couple realities that stand out that kind of answer the question, how in the world could the people of Israel go from where they were in the book of Joshua, characterized by faithfulness, to where they are in the book of Judges, really characterized by great compromise? A couple realities. One, you remember the book of Deuteronomy that we looked at several weeks ago. The book of Deuteronomy was written in large part to prepare the people of Israel to go into the land. God gave them specific instructions. One specific thing he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll just read this to you. He said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess it and clears away many of the nations before you, and then he lists some of these nations, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and all those nations. He says to them, the Lord your God will give you these nations and you must defeat them. You must devote them to complete destruction. So God was very clear. When you enter the land, you're going to wipe out some of these nations, some of these peoples completely. Some of that's a little uncomfortable for us to read about that. We don't quite understand the depth of depravity of these nations. God was just in calling for these nations to be wiped out. He was also wise and loving to the people of Israel. He knew the thorn in the side to the people of Israel these Canaanite peoples were going to be. So he gave them clear instructions. When you go in, you are to wipe them out completely. He said you're not to intermarry with them. You're not to give your daughters or their sons to their daughters or sons. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4, he says, Because, or for, they, the people of the land, would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God gives that instruction with great care because he knows the trap and the snare these Canaanite peoples are going to be. Well, what happens? When you find them now in the book of Judges in chapter 1, you see what could be characterized as partial obedience. And by the way, I used to listen to pastors all the time who would say partial obedience is the same as disobedience. And that's what you see here in the children of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 27, Manasseh, one of the tribes, one of the peoples of Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shon. Verse 28, chapter 1, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 31, Asher, another tribe of Israel, did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. In other words, they obeyed, but only partially. And they allowed these Canaanite peoples to remain. And the fruit of their partial obedience shows up in years years in the future, especially in the next generation as we're going to see. It's a great truth for us. Partial obedience to what God is calling us to do is the same as disobedience. And we may not see the fruit of that for years, even generations to come. 
There's another quick observation that sets up the book of Judges. This appears in chapter 2. Remember, again, back in Deuteronomy, God gave them instructions to prepare to go into the land. He told them what to do with the the nations they were going to uh, encounter. Then he comes back and he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we hear this all the time. He says, hear, O Israel, and be careful to do these things written in the law. Verse, uh, in verse 3, he says, In this land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema. We talk about that all the time around here. Verse 5, You'll love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Verse 7, You shall teach these things diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, diligently instruct the next generation. Well, how did that turn out? Uh, did they obey this? Did they partially obey this? Well, it appears that there was great neglect from this generation that inherited the land to teach diligently the next generation. Where do you see that? Chapter 2, verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So this generation dies off. Joshua, their leader, dies off. Now you have another generation that's occupying the land. Verse 10 of chapter 2. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. That's the Joshua's and Caleb's that came into the land. Now there's the next generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for them in Israel. Now that ought to catch our attention. And we really should stop in our tracks as we read that and ponder that deeply. The fruit of evidently the prior generation's failure to diligently teach the generation that was coming after them shows up here in verse 10. And what you see in the book of Judges is the long-term consequence and what happens when we fail as parents, as caregivers, as leaders to invest in the next generation. Striking that the Bible says, An entire generation now rises up who did not know the Lord or the work that God, he, had done for Israel. So there was this partial obedience and there was this lack of diligence in teaching and training the next generation that lays the foundation that sets the stage for the book of Judges. Now, there's another theme that kind of overshadows the entire book. There's a verse that's repeated four different times in the book of Judges that helps us understand what's going on here. You see this near the end of the book. In fact, the book closes with this. So I'll just read this to us. This is Judges 21-25, and it says this. In those days, the days of the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21-25, but it's repeated four times. Here's the big truth that we're going to work from, and then we're going to pull some big ideas out of this. Sin chooses what seems right in our own eyes. Sin, our sin, causes us to choose what seems right in our own eyes. So what was going on in the period of Judges according to this? Well, you could say this. Truth was what each person defined it to be. That never turns out well. Also, What was right, what was wrong, what was appropriate? Well, I think you could say the answer was whatever their heart told them to do. In other words, you could say this about the book of Judges. Here's a theme if you want to use this title. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. 
And when we just follow our heart as opposed to the truth of God's word, disaster, compromise, sin, and as you'll see in the children of Israel, bondage always results. And that's what happens here. Sin chooses what seems right in our own eyes. Now, let's take a look at the text. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. Let's look in Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through 19. We're going to focus in on these few verses. And these verses give us a pattern that's repeated throughout the book of Judges. I'm going to read these verses. We'll make some observations. And as we read these verses, we're going to note this pattern, this cycle, if you will, of compromise that repeats itself over and over and over in the book of Judges. So let's see if we can pick up on this pattern. It will help you as you study through the book of Judges. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Talk about that in a minute. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. First pattern you see in this cycle here is very clearly a heart shift takes place in the children of Israel. Their heart shifts from the God of Israel subtly, incrementally, step by step, their heart shifts to the God's of the land, the gods of the peoples. It's a heart shift. Compromise and idolatry follow. Let's keep reading verse 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So now you move from a heart that's shifting to the second part of the cycle. You, you see bondage takes place. Those gods that they thought were serving them, they are now serving those gods. They're in bondage to their idols. The Bible mentions two here. It mentions Baal and Ashtaroth. You hear the word Baal, this god Baal throughout the Old Testament. Baal was the chief god of the land of Canaan. In this day, Baal was attributed the qualities of really being in control of the rain. If you wanted good crops, remember this is an agricultural society. Everything, everything rose and fell on the rains, the crops. The people were so dependent upon that. They attributed to this god Baal whether or not the rains would come and even more so whether or not the crops would come. You're going to have food to feed your family. Are you going to have what you need to make it? When you walked into the land, the people were constantly surrounded with this idea Baal is the one who is ultimately in control of that. Doesn't mean you have to deny your God, Israel, but Baal is really the one that you put your confidence in and your trust in, and that's suddenly what began to happen. Baal was known as the Lord of heaven. Again, he was responsible in the minds of the land, of the, the people of the land, to bring the rain, to bring the crops, and therefore sustenance and food. Ashtaroth, that's mentioned here in verse 13, was this twisted understanding of Baal's sister wife. She was the goddess of sex and fertility and war. So in that day, if you wanted fertile crops, you wanted healthy land, you wanted the rains to come, as well as prosperous families, you wanted security from enemies that might come into the land, it was Baal and Ashtaroth that you ultimately needed to trust in. And that was the culture 
and the mindset that the children of Israel stepped into. It was driven a lot by fear. Of course I want my family to be healthy. Of course I want my family to have food. Of course I want my family to be prosperous. And subtly, incremental step by incremental step, they began to move away from an understanding that all of this came from the hand of Jehovah God. He was the source of all of this. To subtly, to begin to trust in lesser things that their eye could see in the land. Similar trap for you and I. We walk by faith, not by sight. But subtly, we begin to trust in the things we can see more than the God we can't see. Verse 14, so what does God do? How does this turn out? Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunderers. Stop right there for a minute. The anger of the Lord here has to be interpreted as righteous love. In other words, when God's people, when the hearts of God's people, you and I, when our heart begins to shift, God is not indifferent about that. God is not passive about that. God actively loves us. So the Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled because he wasn't just going to sit idly by and let his people go into further idolatry. He gave them over to plunderers. Those were foreign enemies that came in and began to attack and plunder the people of Israel. He sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So here's the third step of this cycle. Step number one, a heart shift. Step number two, bondage to our idols. Step number three, God disciplines. God lovingly, righteously disciplines his children. He pursues his people here by raising up a foreign enemy to come against them. And then ask the question, now can these gods that you've been trusting in deliver you? Now in a situation of crisis, in a situation of difficulty and pain and uncertainty, now can these gods in whom you have been trusting, can they deliver you now? And the obvious answer was no. And the intention was that their hearts would be turned back to him, to the one true God. Story continues. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So the cycle goes from heart shift to then bondage, to then God executes discipline in their lives, to now you come to where they're crying out in great distress. You see that pattern repeated. In the time of Gideon, the Midianites were enslaving the people and they cried out to God. In the time of Samson, the Canaanites and the Philistines were uh, oppressing the people of God and they cried out to God to do something. That's a pattern that repeats itself. In this time of bondage, in this time of great distress, when these foreign enemies are coming in, the people of Israel cry out to their God, deliver us, help us. The story continues, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. That word deliverer here. God raises up deliverers. The Samsons, the Gideons, the Jephthahs, the Barracks, all of these judges God raises up. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge, and he saved or delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. So the people would cry out. God would faithfully raise up a judge, and that judge imperfectly and righteously. And by the way, these judges are pretty messed up characters for the most part. 
especially a, a dude, dudes like Samson and some of these guys. So it wasn't the righteousness of the judge. That wasn't the point. It was the faithfulness of God. So he raised up these judges, then they delivered their people. Why? Middle of verse 18. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God was moved to mercy and compassion for his people. He puts that on display. Even in the backdrop, as we said earlier, of their sin and compromise, you see God's faithful deliverance and pursuit of his people. God's grace even overshadows their sin and disobedience. Verse 19. But whenever the judge died, whenever the judge died, they, people of Israel, turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Final point in this cycle was repeat. It goes on repeat. Their heart shifts. They fall into oppression to these gods. God sends his discipline. They cry out to God. He raises up a deliverer. That deliverer gives deliverance for a period of time, only from external things. He never it has the capacity to change their heart. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then when that, do, that judge passes from the scene, the cycle repeats itself again and again and again. And you see that throughout the book of Judges. So let's make a few applications to all of this. Let's try to pull out a few big ideas and we'll draw it to conclusion. Remember our big truth. Sin always chooses what is right in our own eyes. You see that lived out in the life in the book of Judges here. So a few questions. Why does Israel so easily go after other gods? And why do we? Big idea number one. Our hearts easily shift to trust the idols of the land. In other words, all of us suffer from heart trouble. All of us suffer from a distinct propensity for our heart to shift from the God we can't see to the idols of the land we can see. We see this back in chapter 2, verse 11. A few words stand out, particularly in verse 12, the word abandoned. It says they abandoned the Lord. The word abandoned means to shift or to replace or to turn from. There was a heart, a shifting condition of their heart. It can be subtle. Our hearts can begin to shift before we even realize it. Our hearts can begin little compromise by little compromise by little compromise before we ever even realize it. That's why it's so important for us to continue in the Word of God. That's why it's so important for us to be surrounded by the people of God, to lovingly call out when they see a heart shift that we, as a blind spot, can't even see in our own life. They begin to abandon the Lord their God. Forgetfulness. It says they forgot or they seemed to not remember the God who had brought them out of Egypt, the God who had brought their people into the promised land by great power and an outstretched arm. In other, other words, they suffered from forgetfulness. They lost sight of who God was and all that God had done. Throughout the Bible, the word remember, remember, don't forget, call to mind, take it to your heart. Don't let your mind and your heart forget who God is and all that God has done. Again, another reason we gather as the people of God and regularly celebrate things like the Lord's Supper and we regularly sing, sing the great songs of who God is and we gather around the Word of God 
is so that we will be reminded, we'll call to mind who God is and all that he's done. Children of Israel lost sight of that. And finally, it says they went after. Verse 12, that is an attitude or a position of their heart. Their heart began to be fixed on the gods of the land they could see versus the God they could not see. True of us. John Calvin again said, we all, our hearts are little idol factories. We love our idols. Our idols can be anything that claims the place in our heart that only God should have. An idol can be any good thing that we elevate to the status of a God thing. Or an idol can be anything or anyone that we look to or depend on to be or to do what only God can do or be in our lives. So next question, what results when our hearts shift to idols? Well, this is our second big idea. Idols always make promises, but ultimately lead to bondage. The word here, verse 13 of chapter 2 says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. In other words, what they went to to deliver and provide for them ultimately became their master. And that's the way it goes with idols. Second Peter says this, For whatever overcomes a person, by that he is enslaved. Jesus said whoever commits sin is ultimately the slave of sin. In other words, what we think is going to provide all of these promises ultimately will become our master. Subtle compromise leads to bondage. The person who begins to make, for example, subtle compromises, let's say in the area of pornography, pretty soon pornography becomes their master. This person who believes somehow that if I can just buy more stuff, joy is on the other side of that. The promise is more stuff, more joy, ultimately becomes enslaved to consumerism. And on and on and on, the person who thinks my identity is ultimately wrapped up in my health and fitness, which health and fitness is a good thing, but ultimately seeks their identity, will become enslaved to health and fitness. On and on and on, the examples continue. Some of these things can be good things, but they're not ultimate. They cannot be our functional savior. That's only what God can do. So these things we look to to fulfill these promises can often enslave us and lead us into bondage. Thirdly, why would God allow an enemy to come against his people here in the book of Judges? Well, this is big idea number three. God lovingly pursues his people, us, by exposing our idols in which we trust. Maybe painful, maybe hurtful, maybe unclear or confusing during those seasons, but God lovingly pursues his people. Verse 14 of chapter 2 again says, He gave them over to plunders. He allowed these things to come into their lives. He was completely in control of every bit of it. No enemy came into the land of Israel that God did not allow. Same for us. But God did that as a means to discipline his people. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? For they discipline us for a short time has seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The word discipline has the idea of pursuit. God will lovingly allow things into our lives to pursue us when our heart begins to shift. You can put it this way. Sometimes God allows uncertainty, pain, uh, sickness, whatever it may be, 
because he loves us enough to pursue us and expose our idols. Does that mean every time we're sick or something negative happens, we're in sin? No, not necessarily. The book of Job shows that clearly. But it is true that often God would allow things into our lives to expose our idols. That's what he's doing in the lives of the children of Israel here. Finally, how do we respond? The final big idea is this. Our response is repentance from our idols and a longing for our true deliverer and our king. Repentance from idols. One of the things that you see in the lives of the children of Israel here uh, is a challenge to us to continually be asking questions. Lord, what am I trusting in in my life more than you? Lord, what am I seeking to find as my true identity or my identity more than you? What am I trusting in? What has taken the place in my heart that is reserved only for you? In other words, even in the season we find ourselves as Christians today and all the uncertainty and all that's going on, one of the outcomes of all of this could be that God is revealing our idols. God is lovingly, graciously revealing to us the things that we are trusting in, not necessarily even sinful bad things, but we may be trusting in the stock market more than we trust in him. We might be trusting in the promise of health more than we're trusting in him. Whatever that is, one of our responses is repentance from our idols. Our other response is to generate here a longing in our hearts for our true deliverer and our great king. Book of Judges, that chapter 2 verse 19 says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back to the same pattern of sin. Why? Because that judge could only deliver them from temporal enemies. That judge, Gideon, Barak, Samson, whoever it was, could do nothing to change their heart. Their hearts were never changed, only their circumstances. Not true for us. We have a deliverer. We have a king who has the capacity to change us from the inside out. Not just our external circumstances. God, use our external circumstances to reveal our heart that may create a greater longing for you who brings about transformation in our lives. The book of Judges ends with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the book of Judges is intended to leave us longing for a king. Now, earthly kings come. We'll look at that in the book of First and Second Kings. Saul, David, Solomon. But even those earthly kings couldn't change the human condition. Those earthly kings are to create a greater longing for the true king, King Jesus, who has come and who will return again and not only rule upon the earth, but has the capacity to change our wayward, sinful, straying hearts. Finished with this quote from my disciple when I was in college. He said, fixing our hearts on the Lord Jesus involves a deliberate stirring of our affections toward him. We do this by reminding ourselves of who he is and all that he has done. Brothers and sisters, let's press into the Lord Jesus. Let's fix our eyes and our heart on him. Let's be reminded continually of who he is and what he has done. And let's worship the Lord our God and turn from our idols.